Leonard Fournette is a far superior athlete to Derrick Henry, according to Bleacher Report's Matt Miller. Ah, hashtag draft Twitter's at it again. And with five days to go until the draft, they turn to their leader at NFL Draft Scout for the worst kind of nonsensical hyperbole, because that's what we get. A week before the draft, all the takes have been given. This is the worst time to be a sports fan. Certainly the worst time to be a football fan. The week before the draft. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. (laughs) These bottom of the barrel takes. They're just scraping the crud out of the bottom of the barrel. And this is what you get. Some guy watching Leonard Fournette on his computer thinks that Leonard Fournette is a far superior athlete to Derrick Henry. It's just absurdity. That's what film grinding is. That's what draft Twitter is. Just a bunch of guys watching football on the computer, writing down something they thought they saw on the computer. That's what it is. Stuff guys think they saw when watching football on the computer. (laughs) I mean, this is what we're basing our player evaluations on. What some guy thought he saw on the computer. This is how draftniks can somehow, some way, ignore all of Jeremy Nichols' accomplishments and rank him as the number 19 running back in this class. Or put together a seven-round mock. People actually do this. I thought first-round mocks were bad enough. There are actually seven-round mocks out there. Seven-round mock draft! The ultimate exercise in futility. I mean, if a first-round mock draft is masturbation, what's a seven-round mock draft? I'll put that out to the audience. I don't even know. I'm not that kinky. Tweet us, at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. If a first-round mock draft is masturbation, then what is a seven-round mock draft? (laughs) It's my personal hellscape. And that's just reading them. I can't imagine actually crafting one, writing one up the hell is wrong with these people? We try not to be judgmental on the show. We try to refrain from judging inherent traits, calling people names, and criticizing actions. But the people that are participating and consuming in the seven-round mock draft, you people need to get a life. I mean, anything, literally anything in the world that you could do, any endeavor, any hobby, any job, would be more fruitful than writing or reading a seven-round mock draft. So I now have a weird relationship with the NFL draft in that most of NFL draft media makes my skin crawl, but player profiler is very popular among the NFL draft media. It's quite the conundrum. So what we've decided to do this year is expand our player database to include all defensive players in this rookie class. So if you've signed up for the all-in package on playerprofiler.com, you already have access. You can go look up Solomon Thomas. You can go look up to Karis McKinley. You can go look up Buda Baker. Namaste. And you'll see why I believe Derek Rivers from Youngstown State is a better edge rusher than Derek Barnett from Tennessee. So go to playerprofiler.com, sign up for a subscription, get the all-in package, and essentially the cornerback suite has become an entire defensive player suite. Now, we don't have all the defensive players in the NFL yet. This is a work in progress, but 
in order to satiate the NFL draft media community, we are adding all of the rookie defensive players that we believe will be drafted, at least in the early rounds. I mean, I have no idea with these defensive players. All I know is Miles Garrett is the best prospect, regardless of position, in my history in this business, which isn't very long. And if I can't get Miles Garrett, I'm going after Marshawn Lattimore, who is essentially the Miles Garrett of the cornerback position. And I love Jabril Peppers. Oh, put Jabril Peppers at safety and just watch him make plays sideline to sideline. Oof. This is a seek and destroy safety with actual athleticism. Now, I know Justin Evans from Texas A&M. He's the big hitter in this class. I get it. But he's not the kind of athlete that Jabril Peppers is. Jabril Peppers is going to translate and translate very well. Just like with our wide receivers, what do we like in our defensive backs? Special teams experience. So if you're returning punts and kicks, like Adore Jackson from USC or like Jabril Peppers from Michigan, I'm going to upstack you in the ranks. Now, we're not going to do a whole show today on defensive players. I actually could. That's the scary thing. And I did. I did a full half an hour show for patrons only. Go to patreon.com, search Podfather, and you can get access to our exclusive patrons only shows. The last show I just did was a rundown of all the top defensive players that I expect to be drafted in the first round. My full take on everyone from Miles Garrett to Obi Melanfonwu. Again, go to Patreon, search Podfather, become a supporter of the show. Just keep that in the back of your mind once this show is over. If you want to support this show and keep it going, go to Patreon and join the community. I've plugged the back of my brain into the matrix, downloading information about defensive players the last few weeks because I've been asked to be a part of Yahoo Sports draft coverage. It's not really me, it's player profiler. They want to show player profiler screens and they want me to explain agility score, burst score, college dominator to the audience. And I'm happy to oblige, but I also have takes. Of course, they're not going to be able to get me to just walk through the metrics on TV and not give takes. I am going to give takes. Metrics-based takes. Takes with authority. Yes. Backed up by numbers. Unlike all the other draft shows that are just telling you what some guy with a computer thought he saw one day. (laughs) So for that reason alone, because Player Profiler will be featured on the Yahoo Sports draft show, I highly recommend tuning into that show. You can stream it on yahoo.com Thursday, 8 o'clock. Do it. And we'll see how Player Profiler does. We'll see how Player Profiler stacks up against the anecdotal analysis that others may lob in. I'm ready. Ready for battle. We have our numbers. We have our data. We have things we can measure against the intangibles. Uh Uh-oh. The measurables versus the intangibles. We're going to war. Going to war on Thursday. Should be fun. But in the meantime, you absolutely should be getting yourself an all-in subscription on playerprofiler.com. The all-in package not only includes the rankings, which are rookie rankings, dynasty rankings, seasonal rankings, weekly rankings, the data analysis tool, which allows you to pull lists of players by any given metric, sort them, export to Excel, but the defensive player package called the cornerback suite now, the reason it's called the cornerback suite is because we have all the cornerbacks and we tracked and charted cornerbacks last season. So we have coverage rating, we have pass breakups. We have interceptions. We have passer rating against. We have fantasy points per game against. 
fantasy points per snap against. Lots of interesting cornerback metrics that will help you particularly in DFS. Now, DFS is months away, but why not get acclimated to the cornerback suite now? And while you're at it, you can look up someone like Akella Witherspoon from Colorado. He's a late bloomer who regressed in his senior year, and that's always a statistical red flag, but you know, less than 75 total tackles, only three interceptions in his career at Colorado. That's not good. Witherspoon also the worst tackler in the class, just an unwilling, sloppy, zero-against-the-run type player, but he's also the arguably the second-best size-adjusted cornerback in this class after Kevin King. I mean, Kevin King and Akilla Witherspoon have incredible size-adjusted athleticism. They stand 6'3", and Witherspoon has a 40.5-inch vertical jump that was best in this cornerback class, and his 11.60 60-yard shuttle was also number one in this cornerback class. He also has the widest wingspan because of his length, 6'3", and his arm length, upper percentile, the widest wingspan in this class. To execute the modern NFL zone man hybrid schemes, defensive coordinators covet these giant wingspan athletic predators in the secondary. Akella Witherspoon is going to be a great value late in the first round or in the second round to any team that drafts him. Now that's just my take on Akella Witherspoon, who's a random corner picked out from the air. But this is what we're talking about. The power of player profiler. I can look at player profiler page for Akella Witherspoon. And I can rattle off what I just rattled off. This is why anyone that's a fantasy writer or fantasy football media believes that player profiler is a revolution. That the day they found it was like finding religion. It's truly enlightening because boom, it's right there. You can tell the story of that player using numbers. You don't have to fall back on the cliches and the platitudes and the nonsense analysis that you get when you listen to someone who's just telling you what he saw when he watched this player on his computer. And you might as well listen to someone give play-by-play while they're playing Madden. I mean, there's no difference between that and listening to these film grinders talk about NFL draft prospects based on a game they watched on their computer, something they thought they saw. There's really not a lot else to talk about in the sport of football. Everyone's just now waiting, watching the NFL draft countdown, waiting for this event to happen so we can have the stimulus, talk about where all these players are landing. And because draft Twitter has infiltrated my timeline to such an extent that it has chased me off of social media altogether, I was forced to consume some basketball. And I was reading about Steve Kerr, coach of the Golden State Warriors, and how he's recently had to step down again as the coach of the warrior because he has back problems. Now, this isn't just the back strain, the herniated disc that many of us suffer with. He went in for surgery to repair a herniated disc, and he suffered a spinal fluid leak during surgery. I don't know if it was a botched surgery. I don't know if it was a freak occurrence. I don't know what happened. That was two years ago. So I don't know if this is something that they can fix, or this may be something that is a permanent affliction, and he may never be able to coach again. I mean, this is his third time trying to get back to the bench and being unable to execute the tasks of the profession at the highest level, which is what they're asking him to do with the Golden State Warriors. They're at the highest level, and for him to be at practice every day, for him to be sitting down, standing up, sitting down, standing up on the sideline for 82 games, I can see why that would be impossible for someone with leaky spinal fluid. But it raises a much larger question, which is what do you do about pain? I go back to 2015 when he opted to go in for surgery. Why did he do that? Our culture does not embrace pain. Our culture runs from pain. I don't understand why. I don't know when that happened. 
but pain has been a reality for the human race. Early man lived with pain constantly. They had to survive with broken bones and torn ligaments. They didn't have Advil in Mesopotamia. But with the rise of the pharmaceutical industry, and in particular, narcotics, well, you shouldn't have to live in pain. I'm in pain right now. My knee hurts, my ankle hurts, and my lower back hurts. And I practice yoga, and one of the things that we do in yoga is that we revel in being uncomfortable. Your body needs to be uncomfortable. The body needs to be put in uncomfortable positions. And if you're continuing to put the body in uncomfortable positions, it gets used to being uncomfortable. It makes the pain more manageable. It's a very dull pain. This is not acute pain that we're talking about. Some people are in acute pain. That's a whole other problem. Steve Kerr, I believe, was in acute pain in 2015. What do you do about acute pain? Sharp pain that is debilitating. What do you do? There was a movie nominated for an Oscar recently about Vinnie Ponzienza, the boxer from Rhode Island. It's called Bleed for This. And he broke his neck in a car accident, and they recommended surgery. And he said, no, I'm not going to do surgery. Put my neck in a brace, and I'm going to rehab it. And because he did not opt for surgery and permanently fuse his spinal cord and render his body unable to withstand the punishment of a punch to the face, he was able to rehabilitate himself over time. He went the route that had maximum pain, maximum strain, maximum effort, but he was rewarded with a championship boxing career after a broken neck. And that's the one takeaway that Steve Kerr had from this experience. Do not opt for back surgery. If you have a bad back, do not opt for back surgery. A, something can go wrong, like what happened with Steve Kerr. And B, you're not necessarily going to be any better off from a pain standpoint or from a range of movement standpoint. The medical profession offers us wonders. The things I hear that the medical profession is able to do for people, truly stunning. But there are areas where I believe they go too far and they're too quick to be the solution. Number one, surgeries. Number two, pain management. And pain management is the biggest problem. And this is where I start to think about NFL players. Because when I was an equipment manager in college, we had players playing on Vicodin. We had players playing, practicing on painkillers because they had to take these painkillers in order to get on the field. Now think about that. We have pain for a reason because it tells our body, do not put strain on this area. This area needs to heal. This part of the body is broken. It's torn. It's bruised. Don't disrupt it. Let it heal. That's the point of the pain receptors. When you numb the pain receptors, you're short-circuiting the body's ability to heal itself. That's dangerous. Playing football on a wounded body is dangerous. And the diagnosis that I find most unsettling in the NFL is the conclusion that an injury is simply a pain tolerance issue. You can play with that injury. It's simply a pain tolerance issue. No! That is the most dangerous euphemism in sports. The idea that an injured player is just dealing with a pain tolerance issue. No. If the player is in severe pain, that's because the injury is severe and they shouldn't be on the football field. Period. Period. If an individual needs to take painkillers to play a sport, they shouldn't be playing the sport on that day. Ever. Without exception. So culturally, we've gone too far. Believing that we can mask the pain to minimize downtime. That's not just football players. That's not just athletes. That's the person who's going to the office in severe pain because they feel like they don't have a choice. 
and they swallow a Vicodin to get through it. Now, with drugs like Vicodin, they are considered opiates, but they're not as addictive as you might think. The reason why is because they are laced with acetaminophen, which is an ingredient in over-the-counter painkillers, is essentially toxic for your liver. That's why you should not be taking too many Tylenols. These painkillers have ingredients that are often toxic to the liver. So it's difficult to abuse something like Vicodin because you will experience liver failure very quickly. But of course, the pharmaceutical industry solved this problem too when they invented oxycodone. Ah, oxy, yes. The most underreported epidemic in the history of epidemics. The leading cause of death in the state of Ohio, for example, is no longer car accidents. It was car accidents for 50 years. And then it became opiate overdoses. And the reason is twofold. The reason, number one, is pain management clinics started opening up all around Ohio and northern Kentucky, dispensing oxycodone. And unlike Vicodin, oxycodone does not have the acetaminophen that would essentially be a physiological deterrent to addiction. Oxycodone doesn't have that. And I read a book called Dreamland by Sam Cajones. Cajones doesn't sound right. Like, that can't be right. No, Sam Quinones, not Cajones. <laughs> But it took some cojones for him to write this book. The setting is Southern Ohio, a town called Plymouth. And Dreamland was this incredible town pool that was the gathering spot for so many. And then over time, the mills closed and eventually Dreamland closed. And the story of Dreamland was a poignant illustration of what happened to many industrial towns in America over the last 30 years. Many of these towns were ravaged by drug addiction in the last 10 years. And there was an interesting confluence of events that allowed hardcore narcotics to become an epidemic in these towns, laying them low. The first was a company called Purdue Pharma released oxycodone. And a big part of its marketing campaign was convincing doctors that it was okay to prescribe opiates, not for acute pain, debilitating pain for hospital patients, which is when opiates were used previously. If you were terminal in the hospital, they would give you opiates. But Purdue pulled a sleight of hand. It took a study of inpatient opiate use and how the percentage chance of addiction was very low and then applied it generally to outpatient care. Now, why do you think the study of inpatient opiate use would yield results of very low addiction? Because the individuals they studied were so sick that dope sickness would be indistinguishable from radiation sickness or the effects of chemotherapy. And often these patients would die before you would ever find out whether or not they were addicted to the narcotics they were given while they were experiencing acute pain at the end of their life. So you take this study and you mischaracterize it in such a way that you convince doctors, smart people, that it's okay to prescribe the active ingredient in heroin to someone with back pain. That was the big change that happened in the 90s. And this company, Purdue Pharma, that produced oxycodone was behind it. And it reminded me of fantasy football. It reminded me of someone taking a very specific set of data and running out to the extremes with their conclusion. Efficiency doesn't matter. Time-released opiates in pill form aren't addictive. Athleticism doesn't matter for wide receivers. We talked about this with JJ Zacharyson on the last show. Take a very specific sample set and you analyze it out of context. That's how the worst conclusions are drawn. 
even in a field like epidemiology. And what happened, of course, the company, Purdue Pharma, was eventually charged with felonies and they paid massive fines so that their executives would not go to jail. <laughs> Welcome to corporate America. I mean, this is just so typical. And what they were charged with on its face is innocuous. Mislabeling of prescription drugs. Mislabeling. Oh, oh, the label was wrong. Oh, sorry. Got that label wrong. Implied it wasn't addictive. Oxycodone, not addictive. Now we have small towns all across America where young people are zombies. The epidemic reached its peak before the government and hospitals finally came to Jesus and said, oh, wait a second. Wait, what's happening here? Pain doctors are prescribing these highly addictive pills for joint pain. You essentially go down the street, go to a pain clinic, and you can get the active ingredient in heroin to treat your tennis elbow. That happened for a decade in this country. And now it's a lot harder to get your hands on oxycodone, but it's still out there. It's still legal. Heroin's not legal. And this is where the story gets interesting because at the same time Purdue Pharma is marketing oxycodone as essentially non-addictive, which is just absurd, with a warning on the pill bottle, do not crush the pills, which is telling addicts, crush the pills. <laughs> it's just, it's heartbreaking. At the same time, there's a revolution in the distribution of heroin from a small town in Mexico called Zalasco. Some guys in Zalasco realized, hey, we can make a lot of money if we sell heroin in the mid-sized cities in America. Stay away from Chicago, stay away from Detroit, stay away from Philadelphia, New York. Those places have gangs. But if we go to Columbus, Ohio, if we go to Indianapolis, we go to Charlotte, we can set up these heroin cells and we can do it under the radar. So what they would do is they would have their drivers put heroin in a balloon, put it in their mouth, and they would drive around and they would give out their phone number to junkies and junkies would call a phone number. The heroin driver would arrive, spit the balloon out, take the money. If they were pulled over, they would swallow the balloon. No evidence. So it became like McDonald's drive through heroin. And it was potent stuff because they got it directly from Mexico and it wasn't cut and refined like the powder heroin people were used to getting in the big cities. These guys were coming in with black tar heroin in these balloons and it was incredibly potent and it was incredibly affordable. It was a great value. They were the McDonald's of heroin. And guess what happens? You at first start taking oxycodone for your tennis elbow and then the prescription runs out or the clinic that you were going to gets shut down by the FBI. But the problem is that you're addicted to opiates at that point. You're addicted to opiates for the rest of your life once you start taking oxycodone. So what do you do? Oh, it's a phone number. Just dial a phone number. Someone delivers essentially the active ingredient in oxycodone in a balloon for a fraction of the price your pills were costing. Oh, this is amazing. This is how heroin overdoses overtook car accidents as the number one cause of death in the state of Ohio. It was a confluence of factors. The oxycodone tenderized the ground, and then in came the heroin dealers with their Happy Meals. I'm reading this book thinking, how is this not a bigger story? Deaths from overdoses are exceeding car accidents for the first time in 50 years? But then I started thinking, well, what's the one profession in this country where you're always hearing about professionals playing through pain? The NFL, National Football League, where they're prescribed painkillers throughout the week just so they can move. And during the game, they're given Toradol, which numbs the extremities. 
And then after the game, they were playing hurt and didn't even realize it. And then the next day, the pain is excruciating, which calls for yet more painkillers. Marcellus Wiley tells a great story about this. I've mentioned it on the show before. When he was with the Buffalo Bills, he thought he had a a groin strain. So they gave him Toradol. And he played through it for the entire season. And at the end of the season, they realized that because he kept playing hurt, it was a pain tolerance issue. The doctor went in and realized, well, actually a tear had gone up his entire abdominal wall. It had just kept tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing more and more and more and more throughout the season. And he didn't realize it because he was constantly numb. And Martellus Wiley's career was never the same because the doctor looked at it and said, I've never seen a torn abdominal wall of this severity ever in my career. The only way to do that would be to take painkillers constantly and collide with other human beings constantly. It's the only way to tear the abdominal wall to that extent because the body's pain receptors would never let it get to that point. But you have to numb the pain receptors to get to that point. And that's what NFL players are doing. So it's twofold the problem that NFL players have. Number one, their injuries are more severe than they would normally be. So an NFL player goes in with a knee problem, goes in with a shoulder problem, and the surgeon goes, oh my God, I've treated a torn labrum before, but nothing this severe. How did it get this bad? This is going to take a full year for you to recover from, but you'll be back on the field in six months. So there's the issue of injury severity. The other issue is eventual addiction to painkillers. So ALS is something that gets talked about a lot. I mean, every other episode of Real Sports on HBO has a segment about a football player with ALS. It's very serious and it's heartbreaking because it's something that you can empathize with. Someone going through some version of severe Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's disease, it's it's heartbreaking while inspiring empathy. That's not what happens with drug addiction. It's heartbreaking without the empathy. That's why you see far fewer stories about former NFL players that are addicted to heroin. How do they make this leap to heroin? How could it possibly happen? It's There was no leap to be made. They were given opiates in pill form while they were players. There's no leap. That's the scary thing. It's why being a fan of the NFL is such a moral dilemma. And I know this show has essentially turned into a depth perspective. This was... (laughs) This was a stealth depth perspective. Because I couldn't read this book, Dreamland, about opiate addiction in America without immediately thinking about football players. And how so many of these football players that aren't on fantasy teams, they're offensive linemen, they're special teams players... They eventually have to go back to living lives outside of football after they've been injected with painkillers for years. And they end up as addicts that no one is talking about. No one is following them with a camera for real sports because they were never famous and their affliction does not inspire empathy. Drug addiction is something that happens to weak people, but these are NFL players that were playing through pain doing something most of us could never do. Do not have the fortitude, do not have the tenacity to be that guy. These are the gladiators of our culture. They're anything but weak. So the next time you're hoping player on your fantasy team plays hurt so you can win a fantasy matchup because it's merely a pain tolerance issue, think again.